Good morning. Good to see each of you. Open your scriptures to Psalm 135. And again, while we move through the series, we have departed from strict exposition, even though we are exegetically handling uh, the scriptures. But as we work through each of our essentials underneath our mission statement, uh, we are actually going to several different places in the scripture uh, to anchor these truths in God's word. So this is the third sermon in a six-sermon series entitled, Who We Are. Uh, It's a reminder, first, of our mission, uh, which is the purpose for our existence. Uh, And really, we wanted a mission statement that would reflect why any biblical church gathers. And that is to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. And underneath that, we have five essentials that really are the framework in how we intend to focus on accomplishing that mission. Uh, And these are scripture, worship, ministry, community, and missions. And I want us to become familiar, really to be able to just quote to one another the first two words of each of those essentials. And the reason I think it's important is because you'll notice the Christ-centeredness of the mission, Scripture, and the statements are longer, and you can, you can find that in our materials in the back, uh, but Scripture is knowing Jesus. It's not just about Bible facts. It's not just about winning a memory program. It is about knowing personally who Jesus is. Worship adoring Jesus. Hopefully that's been happening as we've gathered together. We haven't just sang a song full of religious words, but we're actually adoring him. Ministry, serving Jesus, community, displaying Jesus, and missions, proclaiming Jesus. And all of these are Christ-centered, and one of the reasons we chose the verse we do, that's actually when you walk through those front doors, that is up on the wall, and it is Ephesians 3.21, which says this, To him, to Christ, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever Amen. So today we're going to look a little more in depth at worship. Adoring Jesus through God-exalting, word-saturated, spirit-led worship. How would you define worship? Sean already gave us a little glimpse. We've all been worshiping. This is the first day of a new week. And when you woke up, you started worshiping. You worshiped all last week. You worshiped on Wednesday. You worshiped on Friday night. What is worship? And this is where it's going to be very important that we have a definition and a distinction so that we understand what we're doing, whether it's personal or whether it's corporate. Biblical worship, well, actually, any worship has an object. You can hear about how somebody talks about a black Lamborghini and talking about all, you know, its shape and its speed and its lightness, uh, the way the doors will come up. I mean, you're, you're ascribing worth to a car. I'm not saying just because you describe a car and like a car, you're worshiping it. But it gives you an idea of what worship actually is. There is always an object to worship. I've had you open up to Psalm 135. Look at the first verse. Praise, that's the activity. The Lord, that's the object. Praise the name of the Lord Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. 
Now, if you if you look down in Psalm 135, look at the next look at verse three. One of the reasons we praise or ascribe worth to God is for this reason. Praise the Lord for the Lord is what? He's good. You know, a lot of doubt comes in along that line. It makes us question whether God is really good. If you go down a few more verses, it says this in verse five. For I know that the Lord is. What's the next word? Great. That's why we can ascribe worth. That's what worship means to God, because he is both good and he is great. First Chronicles 1629 says this ascribe. That's the activity to the Lord. That's the object. The glory do his name. And here's how it might look like. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. One theologian explains it this way. When we gather together, because God is our object, He is the audience of one. This is not an audience. We confuse that. I'm not a performer. The musicians are not performers. We're not here to entertain. Right? And we confuse it because we call this an auditorium. And usually when we gather, and there's one person on the platform elevated, and the others are sitting we can become accustomed to the fact that this is just like any other show. And what do we do when we go to a show? We enjoy it or we don't enjoy it. And if we don't enjoy it, we critique it. And all of a sudden, worship is breaking down because of a wrong view, because we don't have a biblical distinction. The audience of one never changes. He is the one we gather for and worship. Whether France or Malaysia or Ecuador, there is an audience of one. So there is clearly a misunderstanding when we isolate worship to likables. Oh, I liked that. I didn't like that. And I think this is a, a normal experience. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a wrong experience, but parents know the experience of driving home and asking their kids after gathering... What question? What did you get out of church this morning? And the kids, I mean, they're delighted to interact and they'll be like, I, I really liked, they probably don't say this, but I really liked pastor's sermon, right? <laughs> what did you like about the sermon? What part? Oh, where he talked about God. Okay, right? He's excited about going to lunch, okay? Ask the daughter. Oh, I really liked the set of songs this morning. And you can just go through and on and on. And any kind of spiritual discussion is encouraging. But we're missing the point by starting with that question. What did you get? Rather than what did you give this morning? Who did you connect to? Who did you encourage? Who did you point to Jesus? Did you give to God primarily? That's the first question. And how did you give to him? So let me ask you, we've been gathered for 29 minutes. What did you give to God in the last 29 minutes? You say, we haven't even taken an offering. I don't mean that kind of giving. Yes, you can give a gift, a tangible gift. That, that's an aspect of worship. But what did you give in the last 29 minutes? We should be asking if the corporate gathering assisted us in revelation and response. 
So when you learn something about God, it's not just an interesting fact. You actually praise God for what he has revealed about himself. Stephen Charnock, who wrote a very large book on the attributes of God, said this. When we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, then we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than that we had been made for him. The object of worship is God. So an appropriate question. What did you learn about God this morning? What did you give to God this morning? Did you not just merely repeat words to a melody? Did you sing those words to God? So when we have our music team, they're actually trying to assist you to worship God, right? Rather than being up here to please you. The scope of worship. Any definition uh, of biblical worship has to have God as its center, but there's also a scope. That means it needs to transcend cultural, economic, geographical brackets. Let me explain. So if, if your definition of worship sounds peculiarly American and English, it's a wrong definition at, at its core. A biblical worship that is God-centered, that affects the heart, should be reproducible throughout the world. That means true biblical worship, if you were transported from here to Somalia under an acacia tree, you could still worship. Or in a five-star hotel in Singapore, or under a thatch roof in Papua New Guinea, or on the sandy beaches of Jakarta, or in a modern climate-controlled building in Denver, or your definition of worship has to transcend a building and a geography and a specific language. Okay, it's God-centered, but now how does that look like? Here's the scope. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So that's the scope. It's global. It's all-encompassing. But the scope is not only global, it extends universally. Or we might say, to the heavens. Listen to what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all. And now listen, it's not just all the earth and all the nations. It says this, and the angels of heaven worship you. What that means is there exist creatures that if you were to see them, if some people were to see them, they'd be tempted to fall down and worship them. A creature with six wings. A creature with the face of a lion. I mean, they're trying to use human terms to describe these amazing creatures. And yet these have been created by God and they worship God. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. Have you ever seen that creature? It would be staggering to get a glimpse of a seraphim. And one called and another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now listen to Isaiah's response. Because the, when you get a glimpse of the true object of worship, which is the Lord, there should be an emotional response. So in the last 33 minutes, were your affections stirred at all for God? Did you give to him an affectionate, passionate worship? This is what happened to Isaiah. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Literally, I've seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah's reaction is not unique. Notice the reaction of other people who got a glimpse of who God is. A leper was healed, then fell on his face because it wasn't just about health and healing. It was about the fact that God stood before him. Peter fell down on a net full of fish. Remember this? Jesus simply said to a seasoned fisherman, cast your net on the other side of the boat. They'd been fishing all night long, seasoned, experienced fishermen, no fish. Now it's daytime, the worst time to fish with nets. And Jesus says, just cast it on the other side. Cast it on the other side, pulls in the fish. And what does Peter do? He doesn't just chalk it up to the best business day ever. He falls down on the fish and he says what? Lord, depart from me, for I'm a wicked man. He got a glimpse of who God is, and he bows down. That's what worship looks like. When John saw Jesus in his ascended state in Revelation 1, it says that he fell down as a dead man, not just because he had walked with Jesus for three and a half years in his humanity, but he got now an accurate glimpse of Jesus' deity. And he falls down, trembling, Daniel's experience, he turned pale and became sick for days. Why? They got a glimpse of who God is. And that's why our first essential is Scripture, because this is where God gives us a glimpse of who He is. Worship must also include prisoners. Believers in prison need to worship. That means they don't have a liturgy. They don't have a worship team. They don't have a hymn book. They don't have a preacher. It needs to include nomads, the persecuted, the quiet house churches in China meeting in secret. See, worship has a definition to ascribe worth to God alone and a distinction. Psalm 95 verse 6 says this, O come, let us worship, okay, what does that look like, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. You know, you can actually have that heart posture when you're singing. Your heart can be bowing down. You can be quietly ascribing worth to God, being reminded of His grace and of His mercy and of His goodness. Whether we agree or not, or like it or not, God has a right to be worshipped. Listen to what John says in Revelation 4. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you. That's that's it. Worth. They're ascribing worth to God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed 
and were created. So that's what the word means, to ascribe worth. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And Psalm 96, 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Corporate worship, therefore, is an expression of God's worth. That's why our songs are God-centered. That is why the elders, before we introduce a new song, we, we carefully look over the lyrics, the words, the theology, the meaning. It, it, it must not just be a popular song, though it should be singable, it should be understandable, but it also has to be theologically accurate. Why? Because it's through this singing we are ascribing worth to a holy God. It's important we understand the parts in public worship. The people in the chairs are really not an audience. The people in the chairs, as I look out and I just see name after name after name, the people in the chairs right now are worshipers. That's what you're doing. Those in the chairs are to be active participators, not passive observers. Why? Because we've gathered for an audience of one. We worship him. Those who are given a public part on the platform, whether singing or speaking, like we said, are not performers. They are also worshipers. Those who play an instrument or lead congregational singing or preach actually serve as prompters, as pointers to God who is worthy. And I think this is a mindset we need to work at getting back. Because if all we do is leave those doors and get in the car and start to evaluate and critique, you have not worshipped. Now, there's a natural part of humanity that's going to say, oh, I really liked that part and this part was very effective and I really loved that song this morning. That's fine. As long as God was at the center and your affections were stirred for him. Worship does not happen unless your heart is engaged both in attitude and action. So let's go to John 4. Open your scriptures to John 4. This is the passage that was read for us this morning. Because as we move from a distinction and definition of worship, God-centered, we are worshipers ascribing worth to him. How do we see that in John chapter 4? John chapter 4 verse 7 immediately introduces attention, especially to a Jewish audience. Jesus stays back. His disciples go into town to get food. He's purposely, by design, staying there at the well. And a woman, to the Jews, inferior by gender. Okay, It is a woman at the well, not a man. And she is from Samaria, culturally inferior. She came to draw water. And what I want you to notice about that is the ordinariness of that event. Okay, she's A lot of people have... Uh, filled in the blanks on why she's drawing water alone at that time of day. It's probably accurate. She's avoiding the crowd. She's avoiding the mockery that would probably be hers because of who she is. But she came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Okay, a simple request. The Samaritan woman said to him, verse 9, how is it that you, she's going to bring up the cultural tension, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, and look at, she brings up the gender tension, a woman of Samaria. She raises the race, culture question, and the gender question. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, a lot like Nicodemus, who's thinking about how do I how do I enter back into my mother's womb and be born all over again? That was John chapter three. The woman is also thinking in very earthly terms. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water Okay, her response, temporal, earthly, immediate. Jesus' response, eternal, satisfying, complete. Look at verse 13. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Isn't that what worship is about? Quenching thirst. Idols leave us empty. Idols leave us hollow. The idol of self, the idol of our social media presence, the idol of our family. There's joy and delight in it, but when we make it the most important thing, it leaves you hollow and empty and thirsty. So the real question Jesus is asking is, are you thirsty? Are you satisfied? Are you content? What will make you complete? Look at verse 15. She gets it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. But she misses it a little bit so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She wants to fix. She wants to avoid the shame that going to the well every day brings. And now look at what Jesus gently and graciously does. He wounds her. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Did she tell the truth? Have you ever told the truth, but not really? He said to her, you said rightly. You are right in saying I have no husband for you. have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Do you know what? This is where worship starts. Understanding Jesus knows your heart. Understanding Jesus doesn't just look at you with the perception of others as you walk in here on a Sunday morning. Jesus knows your heart 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He knows everything, even the hidden things. And this is sort of the doorway into worship. When you understand that God knows you, everything about you, and he still what? And he still loves you. Jesus knows our heart. And the woman said to him, I mean, that would be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? I mean, what would Jesus say to you to get your attention? Go call what? Or last night at 10.29 p.m., you would say, I, I perceive you're a prophet. I mean, this guy knows things about me. I've never met him. Come here to draw water. This is getting very tricky. I perceive that you are a prophet. See, what has Jesus done? And by the way, she's going to change the subject to what? She's going to move it off of her sin to what? Worship. Worship wars. This is nothing new. Jesus identified her idol of seeking satisfaction in relationships. That was her idol. That was her worship. The light has exposed her sin, but here's what she does. And I think it's very instructive. She remains in the light. She doesn't run. And she actually goes exactly in conversation where Jesus was leading her all along. The topic of worship. That's where he wanted it to go. Because the only way to crush an idol is through true worship of God. Look at what she does in verse 20. Our fathers, what's the next word? 
worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is what she does. Oh, by the way, while we're talking about my sin and all the men I've been with, let's talk about geographic worship. You say in Mount Gerizim or we say in Mount Gerizim, you say in Jerusalem. She's dodging the piercing observations of this rabbi and the worship wars have been a smokescreen for millennia. We hide our gossip, our greed, our unloving heart towards others. And so to deflect the issue, we talk about worship location and style. Instead of sin, we talk about syncopation. Instead of slander, we talk about drums. We do everything we can to throw up the smokescreen And all Jesus is trying to get us to understand is worship. So he lets her change the subject, which is not a change at all. And look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Worship is not geographical. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Jews rightly understood that Messiah was coming as the rescuer deliverer. Twice, Jesus combines these words. Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. He describes worship for the father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him. Here he does it again, must worship him in spirit and in truth. So have you done that this morning? Because that's what God desires. So you have acknowledged the theological accuracy of the songs. You may have even sung the songs. Did you worship in spirit? And notice it's not a capital S. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It is talking about your spirit. Did you do that this morning? Where are your affections right now? When we sing, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, is there anything inside that is responding to God, praising Him for what He's done? Or are you pulled back and pulled away and criticizing and isolated? What is her focus? Look at verse 19. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She's starting to understand who he is. And she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Here's the object of worship. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What's her response? Because all revelation will have a response. When God reveals himself to us, there will be a response. When God revealed himself to Moses, there was a response. When God revealed himself to Daniel, there was a response. Look at her response in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, the whole reason she was at the well, and went away into town and said to the people, it's almost as if she forgot about her shame, because the light of the world had shined on her and let her know about who he is and his forgiveness. In verse 29, come and see a man who told me all that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? She ascribed worth to Jesus. Notice what's absent in in John chapter 4. There's no liturgy, no music, no scripture reading, but simply ascribing worth to Jesus for who he is. Half Jew, half Gentile performing a normal, ordinary chore, not expecting to meet Messiah, not expecting to have her sins exposed, so overwhelmed by him, she goes and she tells other people. That's worship. 
Finally, I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. This will be our last text this morning. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are a unified vision. There's really no chapter distinction between these chapters. They bring us, they really usher us into the very throne room of God where heavenly worship is happening. So basically, Revelation 4 and 5 do this. They pull the curtain back so that you can see who really is the Lord, the sovereign of the universe. Chapter 4 begins with a collage of Old Testament images taken from Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. The word throne is used 43 times from chapter 4 to the end of Revelation. 19 times in chapter 4 and 5 alone. And the word lamb this is going to be key for us, especially as we segue from this service and then have a coffee connect time and then gather for communion. The word lamb referring to Christ is used 30 times. So again, Revelation, the very last book of our Bible is giving you the object of worship. And it's also going to show you the activity of worship. Look at chapter five, verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, and this is what he sees, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. That's complete and perfect power and knowledge. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, a lamb slain as though it had been slain, thinks sacrifice, but he stands there alive. Okay, I see a lamb as though it had been slain. That is crucial for your understanding of the entire book of Revelation. Jesus overcame his enemies by loving them and sacrificing for them. Okay, God and the lamb are at the center. Chapter five focuses on the power of Christ's death. So look at when he takes the scroll. Look at chapter five, look at chapter uh, five, verse seven. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, so here you have you, you do have a musical instrument. You have singing. This is what they say. Worthy are you. That's the ascribing of worth to the lamb to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. So here's what you have. You have God on his throne in Revelation chapter four and you have a lamb as though it had been slain in Revelation chapter five. And both are being worshiped. That is the object of biblical worship. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And note the content of their song, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In heaven, ascribing worth to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, or truly. And the elders fell down and worshipped. God enthroned and the sacrificial lamb, the central and centering vision of the very last book of our Bibles. Eugene Peterson explains worship in this way. He said, it is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center. The living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. Like the woman at the well, you're thirsty. And you don't even know it because you're there to draw physical water. When Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, he would give to you living water. Chapter four celebrates the God of creation. Chapter five celebrates the God of redemption. In chapter four, the sovereignty and majesty of God Enthroned is central and worship predominates. In chapter 5, the Lamb becomes the focus and worship shifts to Him. Revelation 19, 4 through 7. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures. See, we've moved how many chapters now? Okay, you have the center and centering vision of 4 and 5. All the way now towards the end of the book, it says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying... Amen and hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. That's what worship looks like. When we gather here, we are a microcosm of what is already happening in heaven. We combine our voices. We ascribe worth to God. We do that together. We praise him for who he is and how he has revealed himself to us through his word. Our our ecclesiology, what we do as a church, relates to our doxology, how we worship. And no matter what we're facing, when we come through those doors, sometimes we come in here hurt. Or depressed, or discouraged, or angry, or finding out we have some sickness, or realizing we're still lonely, or realizing we're still single, or cynical, or maybe the night before, or the year before you have wrestled with God like Jacob did. We remember this, verse 6 the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And we meet on the first day of every week to set in motion what worship should look like the rest of the week when we're at our homes and we're at our businesses. I want to invite our music team forward. We're actually going to sing a hymn called the Hymn of the Ages. And it appropriately puts the focus on Jesus Christ as the center and centering vision of our worship. Does God reign... 
in your heart. One person has said, where affection for God is dead, worship is dead. You didn't worship because you sat here for an hour. You didn't worship because you drove to a building this morning. Where affection for God is dead, worship is dead. Religious busyness is not worship. Programmatic religion is not worship. Are your affections stirred for Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who takes away your sin? Let's pray.